Yeah. Okay. Right up. All this money, money, money coming to me. No handouts, I really had to do it for me. Watch me work. Watch me work. Watch me work. Get out the dirt. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the Beauty of Business podcast. Today's guest has almost 500,000 subscribers on YouTube built millions and millions of dollars in watches and is the owner of Luxury Bazaar. Uh, welcome to the podcast room. Thank you, thank you, Alex. Um, for the people who don't know, uh, how did you get your start in in the watch world? Uh, it's a uh, long story. Is the, Well, the short of it is that I was in banking and I uh, had a gentleman that approached me and said, basically, Roman, you know all this computer stuff. And I said, it's a little more advanced than that. Uh, and this was just at the cusp of the birth of e-commerce, specifically with eBay. And he said, listen, I'm in the watch business. I know you like watches. You always have. You bought watches from me. How about I give you a few things to throw on eBay to see what happens? And the rest, as they say, is history. That's exactly how it happened. I threw up a few watches on eBay in a matter of a year to a year and a half. I was making a very nice supplemental income and only a matter of time until I was making the same income and then some. And then I decided that the, just under three years later, decided to quit the corporate life and do this full time. And the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, the market has changed a lot since you first started. Um, what's been the most challenging or difficult time period in the watch world? Well, I think it's that when we all started, we were gray market, right? Gray market was a derogatory term in the industry. Yeah. Uh, a gray market dealer was somebody that was considered to be bad. When I started, it was the world of authorized dealers. ADs ruled the world. It wasn't the manufacturers. It was the ADs. And it was very, very difficult uh, to get past that label, if you will, right? The label of a gray market dealer. And the biggest challenge starting out was the fact that I'm not expecting you to send me tens of thousands of dollars without ever seeing my face walk into a store and, uh, hey, send me $20,000 and I'll send you a watch. And nine out of 10 transactions I spent explaining to the gentleman on the other end or the, or the lady that you're not going to get a brick in the box. That's, it's convincing your client that you're not going to screw him. That was really the biggest challenge starting out. Yeah. And it was kind of in the middle of the dot com and the e-com boom. Uh, and just getting people to type in their credit card information was, was a hassle, uh, just for, for lower, lower purchases, but this is 10,000 and up mostly, isn't it? My first uh, sale on eBay, I sold a watch for $9,750. If you have that kind of time and you go to our eBay store and scroll down about 40,000 pages to our first feedback, you'll see I sold a city of sales to a gentleman in Germany and I was shocked. He reached out via email. Hey, send me a wire. No questions asked. I sent them the watch and he left me positive feedback. I was actually shocked. You know, I was just like, wow. And because this isn't somebody local. Remember, gray market existed before the internet, right? It was always there in places like 47th Street. You guys working out at our homes or offices, but it was still a client walking in and physically getting their watch and paying for it, not somebody getting the package. Um, what's the biggest changes since you started out until uh, in the early 2000s until now? 
um, in terms of market and how to sell the watches? Well, we had a few waves, if you will, right? I mean, somewhere between we had to survive the 2008 financial crisis, which obviously had a huge effect on the watch industry, all the industry in general. But I think the biggest change you saw, I saw in my career was the introduction of social media. Social media, I think, has changed this business uh, tremendously. You can be somebody working out of your basement with a backpack or somebody that has an office and 50 people working for you, yet on the outside, you may look at feel as somebody that is trusted, somebody who is uh, big enough to do business with, right? Because part of the reasons we decided to go the YouTube route and go trans very transparent so people actually see who they what they're dealing with, but what the office looks like, how many people are running around, you know, the process of shipping and packing. Uh, uh, social media works in a way much like any local TV show. You know, you, you, you watch a show, you fall in love with a character, and guess what? When you're in love with a particular character, you want to do something with them. In our case, is do business with them. So social media had a humongous change on, uh, on the industry. It used to be when I used to go to Basel or when I used to go, well, this watch is a wonder now, you know, I used to have to hide who I am and just kind of go there with an AD and do whatever I got to do. And with that said, now if I go to Basel, if I go to watches, I wonder every manufacturer, every watchmaker out there is going to want to be in front of my camera. Right. And that's the power of social media because these manufacturers realize the power that social media holds, that social media can make a break, a brand, literally make a, make a brand. You get enough, you get enough, uh, influences to talk shit about a particular brand. It can literally kill it. It's crazy. Yeah. I think, uh, many people think of the same brand when you, when you mentioned some influencers talking about brands yeah. in a, in a bad way. Um, we all have also seen the kind of um, legacy brands like AP move more towards the pop culture, um, more influencers, collabs with people we didn't think they would collab with. Um, what do you think about uh, how that either strengthens or damages the brand long term? Uh, whenever you go... Well, first of all, AP is probably a bad example because AP has always been the front runner and pretty much anything is also my favorite brand. Uh, when it comes to material use, when it comes to ambassadors, when it comes to, uh, you know, many, many things, AP's always been first. AP's always been on the cutting edge, right? Yeah. Uh, AP, more than 10 years ago, AP had JZ as their ambassador. Now, uh, a stuffy watch boutique somewhere in Switzerland never went hand in hand with a hip hop artist, right? It never really did. Right. Uh, and it's not about the watch industry specifically, Watermark BA. It's about the world specifically. Look at other luxury brands out there. You know, look at the brands like Gucci, Louis Vuitton, uh, and things of that nature going back 15, 20 years versus where they are today. Yeah. Fashion week just passed. Uh, some of the stuff that Louis Vuitton put forth, I'm just like, what the hell is that? And it has nothing to do with the designer or the people that are presenting the brand or them going a certain hype route, it's just like, maybe we're getting older, right? Yeah. So you have to understand that time will always move. And, and the one thing that stays avant-garde and ahead of its time is always fashion. And I think that watches have a big part in that. There's nothing yeah. to do with, you know, having a, a, a clean cut, you know, uh, businessman behind an ad in a 
Rob report in 1982 versus having Travis Scott uh, now all over social media where they eat. It's a numbers game. Remember what I said about social media earlier? Travis is yeah. one of the most followed people in the world. So what if 95% of his followers may not be able to even afford the product? The 5% that can will be exposed to it over and over, and they're going to want that watch. Case in point, you have to pay double the retail for his watch today. Actually, more. You can't yeah. get it. Uh, but there, there has to be a fine balance because you can look at brands like, I don't want to bash Hublot too much, but there are so many limited timepieces, so many collaborations. There are so many football clubs with the same brand. At what point does it flip? Well, first of all, those that are bashing Hublot, I'll tell you one thing. Don't worry about Hublot. Hublo sells and it sells really, really well. It sells well for us. Yeah. It sells well for everybody else, right? I said it before. There's a reason why they literally duplicated their factory next door because they needed the space, right? Uh, them going the route of doing this a multitude of collaborations, you have to understand something. The one big advantage that Hublo has over everybody else out there, okay, is the fact that they're available. You can walk into a Hublo boutique and buy what you want. The fact that they're doing so many collaborations with different uh, uh, with, with movie stars, sports stars, it doesn't really matter. It's because every single one of those collaborations syncs to a group of people, right? If I'm a, if I'm a Ronaldo fan or a Messi fan, I'm going to go out and buy that Messi watch. I don't care what the brand is, right? As long as it's a high yeah. brand. South America, they've gotten the grip on soccer so well that's why you see a ton of people all over europe and a ton of people all over south america where soccer is extremely popular mm. yet the automark gay leo messi didn't really do all that well because they don't have that they have a lion's share of the market when it comes to soccer yeah that's that's interesting because uh in terms of luxury goods and webbing goods uh webbing goods uh, graph the affordability Hublot is not actually affordable to most people um, so it should be categorized as a luxury product or it is categorized as a luxury product but in terms of Evelyn goods it shouldn't be as available for it to be that kind of luxury product so it's an interesting case but that's but that's a myth because what you're talking about what you've seen happen in the last three years right historically going back 20 years at least as long as I've been in a business, every luxury product has always been available. For the most part, it was available at a discount. When I started out in this business, I was able to order people at 10 over cost from a multitude of authorized dealers. I still can't, right? So you're looking at, you're, you're putting together the availability and luxury product, and that's a real comparison. A luxury product is a luxury product. It's something that's well-made by a well-established brand and is expensive. Yeah. Availability of safe product really doesn't have anything to do with categorizing it as a luxury product or not. A luxury product is just it. When you walk into Balenciaga, if you walk into Louis Vuitton or Hermes, you can walk in there and spend a million bucks in a single store. Stuff is available. Does that make it any less luxury? No. Yeah, every brand is going to have some things here and there. Like, hey, you know, this particular model is not available. But in reality, look at the watch world. What's really not available out there? Top half a percent of all watches me, one tenth of a percent of all watches me. Everything else is available. Yeah, it is. Any watch group, any rich one product, the walk into a boutique, you can buy one. Yes, that's a, an interesting flip. Um, 
you mentioned it, uh, but your company, Luxury Bazaar, has done an amazing job in, ter- in terms of marketing, both on YouTube and, and social media. Um, and you mentioned you also kind of planned it out. Uh, but into in what degree was it all planned out uh, or did it just evolve or progress naturally? So as, as, as it started out, it, it was uh, playing catch-up, really growing things because, mind you, it is the gray market watch industry was growing online alongside of my company because I was one of the first 10 guys to start selling watches on Liberia. So now, uh, as the business started evolving, our business evolved into two avenues. It was retail and wholesale. At some point, we lost sight of retail. It went heavy into wholesale. That's what made us a $100 million company. Relationship with manufacturers, buying things in bulk and, pick that, and selling to other dealers is a lot easier. Of course, that came with uh, issues. Things like ridiculous accounts receivables and payables and bad debt expense and, and agent inventory, right? Everything has its plus and minuses. And until I ultimately decided that I'm going to go back to our roots and go the retail route in the end, I made that decision right before COVID hit without knowing COVID was coming. And it was about a two to three year plan to gradually, you know, flip flop because financially that makes sense. And COVID didn't really give us choice. But there's a wholesale wheel stop for three, four months and yeah, I'm to jump right back into it. So there's always a plan, right? I, I do come up with yearly plans and goals and quarterly plans and goals and things like that. As we all know, you know, don't, plans don't always come to fruition. But my thing has always been the same. I dream big and I take small steps to get there. And those small steps is the plan, right? And ultimately, the plan is to sell the company. And that's why I went back to the retail product because you can't really sell a wholesale product. It's not a product. And uh, here we are. Yeah. Because um, both on YouTube and on social uh, it's so optimized for the interested viewer. It's not like it's not Mr. Beast optimized for YouTube, but it's for everyone who is actually interested in watches and especially interested in business and watches. Uh, the YouTube content is just it's the best out there. Um, and also, you have other people in the watch industry on YouTube, which are entertaining and there is good information. But I think you find the the crossing between both business and, and the watch part of it as well. Had it been to me, I'd probably do business advice, you know, yeah. those as well, but that's not the industry I'm in. You know, I'm in the industry of selling watches and that's why the majority of our cockpit is going to be watch related. Although, you know, we're, 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 we need to start shifting gears because what happens is uh, the views on our recent videos have gone down tremendously and that's because the interest is it's been polluted. What does that mean? That means yeah. that there's a dozen other guys that are doing exactly what we're doing. And it happens in any industry, you know, it's, it's economics 101. You make irregular profit when you come to market with something new and that competition catches up and you go back to regular profit. In this case, you can translate that to views. So it's me and 20 other guys doing the same type of content. It's going to get diluted and people are going to shift their attention. And it'll spread their attention across other viewers. But at the loss, it's, you know, numbers are a vain statistic, right? Oh, I got 500,000 views or I got 100,000 views. We're in such a small space when it comes to YouTube. Like, our space is literally tiny. We can never be a Mr. Beast or or a, a guy that streams a video game playing that gets millions of views. Okay. But it's a numbers game. If I can get 100,000 views and out of those 100,000 views, just 1% 
our watch buyers. That's a thousand people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And the the sales funnel, this, I find it very interesting. Um, I've watched a lot of your content, like I told you, uh, and I see the sales guys are working, all the groups, WhatsApp, Telegram, and whatever. Um, but how much of your sales funnel in terms of retail comes from inbound and what comes from actually sourcing and sailing, uh, selling? Okay, well, so source, sourcing and selling, you're, you, I think you're talking about two different things. If you're talking about where the inquiries are coming from, where the touchdowns yeah. are coming from, uh, they're all coming from social media. YouTube is the, the billboard. Instagram is the phone call, right? We can do it. Okay. Yeah. Because what happens is that YouTube is really brand name recognition. It's showing, hey, here we are. We're all up street bizarre. Never heard of us? Check us out. Oh, wow. I kind of like these guys specifically, especially that guy, Alex or Marco or Kevin. I'm going to reach out to him on Instagram when I get one, one next watch. And that's how it kind of goes down. The sourcing part of sales, that's not, that has nothing to do with who is reaching out from where. Sourcing is, um, I can't have everything in stock. So last year I did the math, I think 20% of our sales were sourced which means that I did not have that watch at that particular time in stock. So I had to go out there, buy it from somebody else, and then sell it to a buy. The rest of the stuff is stuff that we have in-house because we, we do keep a large inventory. Uh, and we don't push clients one way or the other. We get them what they want. Even though the margins on source sales is what takes the margins down overall, they're the lowest yeah. margin. Because I am paying a guy in between, and at the same token, I don't want to whack my client over there just because I don't have it in stock, so therefore we make it. But I still land the client, whether it's a existing client or whether it's a client uh, that's new. Um, in terms of uh, percentages of returning customers and first-time customers, what's the what's the split? We have we had last year we had a rate return of seventy-two percent of returning clients. And the reason for that is because A, it's, it's not because we're that great. It's the nature of the beast. Excuse me, one second. So the percent, the percentage of uh, when we, because the business is so personal, you almost become friends with your clients, right? Yeah. You do become friends with that client. It's not. Without a business where people go and check out online. Nobody checks out online on these purchases. People pick up the phone, they call, they text, they WhatsApp, they do whatever. There's a communication built on. It's a very personable communication to a salesperson. That's why once that personal relation has been established, and again, even though we're in the world of where, you know, nobody's doing fraud online anymore, it's still in the back of people's head from 20 years ago. Like, you know what? This guy sent me a $50,000 watch. It went off without a hitch. I'd rather buy from him than taking a chance on a new guy. This is my guy. I found him. You know, and that happens. That's why return applies. So, but it's also take that with a grain of salt because you have to ask yourself a question. How many physical times does one buy my product? This is not socks. It's not paper towels, right? Some, for some, it's maybe a once in a lifetime purchase and we get referrals. For some, it might be two, three. Yes, you have some the generic collectors, and I say that to their face as well, so it's not a derogatory term that, you know, they buy a ton of watches, but that, that yeah. income level is a little bit different versus an average consumer. Yeah, because uh, I think it's very interesting when we see your content, we all often see the, the very high-level clients that 
maybe buying the FP joints or the one-offs. Um, I imagine they do a lot of the revenue in total, but in terms of sales numbers, it's probably a bit lower ticket than say 500 up. So yeah, hold on. Yes, I have it. What big numbers, right? Where's my number? Yeah, I could talk much as well. Our average, our average price ticket uh, is hovering around sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars. That's yeah. where. But you also have to take into consideration that we sell jewelry that lowers the average uh, yeah. ticket item. But if, if you're talking about yes, we love to sell expensive million dollar, half a million dollar rare pieces, but just as rare the pieces are, so are the clients. Because you have, to, you have to understand, this is what, one thing people don't understand. There's a couple of things people don't understand when it comes to big stuff. First of all, I've always, I learned a long time ago in the beginning of my career, if you want to sell big stuff, you have to have big stuff. Flipping that stuff doesn't work. There's Unless you're stocking and taking that chance, you're not going to be able to sell it. When you physically have something, you sell it. When it's somebody else's odds are that client will find that somebody else that you're yeah. flipping, right? Or And they may still buy it from you. You're just not going to make the margin. At all, uh, but and those clients that buy million dollar watches, believe me, they're very very sad, right? Uh, and number two, think about that. You know, the richest again, approximate numbers. The richest of the world make up about four percent of their population, right? That includes people that make a hundred thousand dollars a year, not exactly someone that's going to splurge on fifty thousand dollar watches, right? So, how many of those four percent can still afford that product? How many of those four percent are willing to spend that money on that product? Because there's people have other interests. You know, there are guys that are multi-millionaires that wear Timexes, but yet they'll spend, you know, three million bucks on a Picasso or a fine bottle of wine or an antique or a car, right? So it's 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 a very 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 small pool of people, and the minute you jack the price point of a watch to half a million plus, that pool becomes a lot smaller. Yeah. So that's kind of aka Roman bias uh, in terms of keeping them in stock, taking a chance. Roman, Roman bias don't necessarily have a high ticket number. They sometimes have a low ticket number, but they always carry a margin because Roman buys stem on one simple thing, and that's knowledge. Is yeah. uh, there are so many dealers in our industry, so many newcomers, so many, so many people that even been there as long in the business as long as I have, they just don't know what they have. Yeah, they items like, and again, this is not me talking bad about others, but oftentimes. A lot of dealers treat their stuff as commodities. Hey, I bought X for this much. I made this much. Move on, right? Yeah. I always take the time to dig in deeper. What am I actually buying? What am I actually getting? What is this? Why is this different than the next watch, right? That IWC that I bought at the last show, I was driving my little scooter and I came across a showcase that had maybe 30, 40 Rolex in this one IWC. And I knew that that didn't fit. And I knew I was going to get a deal on that. And I knew. I like to make margin on the buy rather than the sell, where a lot of, there's unfortunately some dealers out there that will try to make the margin on the sell. And that's the case where usually customers don't come back because they are, excuse me one second, because customers understand, well, wait a minute, well, I paid this guy 20 grand or I see somebody else offering it for 15, 16, that's a problem. Now, that happens a lot to ships, and we become victims of that just the same. But if you make money on the buy, your client will be happy, and uh, they'll come back. Um, 
I probably could uh, sit or just watch this all day because it's it's very interesting. Uh, before we move on, what's on your wrist today? Uh, actually, I'm wearing an RM30, actually an RM10 with rose gold full pave diamonds. Something a little out of left field today. Oh, you can't see it there. So extra. Something a little bit out of left field. Yeah, that's nice. Something quiet. So uh, I think many people are very interested in hearing how you can scale a business like yours, because uh, in your industry, most people start with a simple watch and a couple of extra hundred bucks in the bank and then flip their way up. Um, but you have now a huge team, an in-house media team, and you're essentially still flipping watches and, and jewelry. How do you scale that kind of business? Oh, I think I don't. I don't think it's a. Uh... Something that is particular to my industry, I think, is particular to a business period, right? How do you, how does one grow a business? And obviously, the number one answer is you invest back into your business, right? Uh, you know, you go out there, you sell five watches, you make 10 grand, you don't spend that 10 grand, you spend two, and you put eight, the, the rest back in. And our business is very inventory driven, right? But today's day and age, things have changed. It doesn't necessarily have to be inventory driven, right? Uh, there are lots of guys out there that have access to my inventory and 50 other guys. Like mine, and they create a presence on social media or a kick ass app or a kick ass website where people want to come and buy. Look at Connor 24. They don't own a single product and they're a humongous billion dollar business, right? Same goes for eBay, same goes for many other products out there that, special, that sell a multitude of products or watches per se. So, but the general rule of thumb is very simple. It's like any other business, right? You invest back into your business and you scale. The problem is this. This is very hard to keep a medium between, okay, I'm going to invest this money into my business. I'm going to grow personally, my own personal lifestyle. I get, take more money home, right? Because sometimes I found myself in a situation saying, well, shit, I could have been sitting in my basement, flipping my watches like I did the first three years of my business career and taking the same amount of money home. Now I'm paying 40 people, keeping the lights on to the tune of a million dollars a month, right? And I'm still taking, well, I'm taking home a little more, but... A lot more headaches, right? It's a question of yeah. what you. But scaling a business is as simple as taking what you've made and, and investing it back into the business. But investing is smart way scaling uh, along the along the side of your growth as as you're growing and taking into consideration that like this new ship, you know, don't go all in. Some there there was a gentleman that recently went all in. We're not going to mention any names and case in point, he's all out, right? And yeah. I see this happening in my industry all the time. Unfortunately. You know, that particular gentleman was a very public figure, but people go under my industry every other day, trust me when I tell you, because they overspend, they over they overgo, mark the shifts, and they're poor. So, but invest back into your business. And then one advice I can give people is uh, it's very hard when you start by yourself not to micromanage down a line and start hiring people. And keep in mind, not everybody is like you. So you can't have the same expectation of your employees as you do of yourself. Because if those employees were like you, they would be sitting in your chair. So you have to basically utilize your resources to the utmost of their capability with a acceptable margin of error. What I mean by that is that, look, in accounting, I have zero uh, error margin. In shipping, a little bit. You know, in inventory, a little bit. In photography, videography, and all else, there's a... There's a certain acceptable margin of error. And as long as you can recognize the potential of your resources around you, how they can work for you, compensate them well enough within reason and utilize them to the utmost of their capability, 
you'll be fine. The margin of error is where the micromanaging goes away. I used to go fucking crazy when there was a mistake that happened. Because remember, I was every department when I started this company yeah. from to logistics to shipping, you name it. And then all of a sudden I see somebody making a mistake and I'm just like, okay, well, this girl or guy, that's her margin of error or his margin of error. I have to be able to deal with that. Otherwise, I might as well go back to the basement. Yeah, because uh, for you to actually hire someone in your industry, you have to flip or sell a certain amount of watches where you actually have space enough to hire someone. And then you that's have to... Also, that's also not 100%. You would think that's the case, right? Yeah. I should have enough business to where I'm able to scale my sales team. Now, as of recent, with all the drama around the, the internet and Reddit where... You know, we let go a few people. We didn't let go of those people because there was no space. For them. There was no space yeah. for it because we turned around and had a, that another salesperson. The idea behind salespeople, it's not on me to make you a successful salesperson. The way I make you, I give you a better shot is by giving you the media exposure, by spending a million bucks on video production or social media production a year, right? By advertising out there and creating a name for themselves so you don't have to struggle with Oh, shit, you're with Luxury Bazaar, great. But the way we raise salespeople is for them to bring in their whole business. Because if I, if they didn't do that, my salespeople didn't bring in their whole business, I don't need them. I can, I have enough people that have been here for 18, Anna, Adrian, myself. They can, we can cover all those sales. It's not an issue for those that are coming in. It's a question of going out there and getting your own business, creating your own client book under our umbrella. And our promise to you is that we're going to make a very comfortable umbrella. So I have room for 10 more salespeople, right? Now, granted, there's still inquiries that come in on a daily basis from the, from the website, from certain mailing lists, from uh, social media channels that are not the salespeople's channel that spread get spread amongst the salespeople. But that's not that significant. The most significant part of every salesperson's uh, sales is the sales that he goes out and gets himself. And that's Think about it, 70% return clients. That doesn't just spread among me. That spreads among everybody, right? Yeah. We have processes in place that almost make our salespeople reach back out there on a regular basis. We use software, CRM systems that allow us to do that, to stay in clients' faces. When I said umbrella, we make a comfortable umbrella for our salespeople. The amount of salespeople is almost irrelevant. Yeah, I'm not going to have 100. I get it, right? It just doesn't make sense. But I have room, and this year, most likely, I will bring on another two, three salespeople, those that we deem worthy. But at the end of the day, I want those that are not sitting here waiting on an inquiry to come in through the website because that doesn't happen every second. You know, people, again, will call their own sales guys. So you go out there, make a name for yourselves, via social media, we help, and you build your own client. Because once you do, if you ask Anna, 90% of her business is rich on clients. Yeah, I've been doing it 18 years. Right. I'm able to sell myself. Last year, I think I did seven to eight million in business. This is just from clients that are still in my cell phone that I must pick up. But I'd be passing off 70% of the stuff that comes my way to the sales team. Um, I can see the, in terms of salespeople, because they kind of have their, you can see uh, what they earn and what revenue they actually earn for your company. But in terms of scaling the whole comp company as a whole, you need to select people uh, and people are probably the most important part at your business right now. So how do you uh, select the people that are coming in 
in the different uh, departments? It's uh, so my uh, longevity of employees here, or well, the life expectancy of an employee here is very, very long. Uh, if I go around the departments, uh, you know, it's most people that are here have been here over 10 years. And the only reason they haven't been here as long as me is because the company was very small to begin with, right? It yeah. started with me and Adam, right? And Peter, who's our programmer who lives in Texas, right? He was actually first and then Anna came. When I opened up an office, I needed a girl to pick up the phone. Uh, then, you know, they moved on. As I scale, I hired Carol as an office manager because I needed an office manager. I mean, somebody to do the dumbest thing, like order paper towels, right? Like, you know, and then she's kind of like the mom of the office. She's been with me almost 18 years as well. Then I needed to scale. So what did I need? I needed a COO. I needed somebody's going to be my right hand man to help me build all these departments because I real I, I know I'm a firm believer that you can't build a company unless you build a solid foundation. If one side of the building, be it shipping, logistics, or whatever else, is weak, the, the building will topple over. So now I hired Vlad, who took from me being the HR department, the accounting department. Then I hired it, somebody in accounting, and all these people have been with me more than ten years because I make it a comfortable place to work and. For those that are good, they get compensated very well. The joke around here is that our guy that packs boxes, our shipping guy, makes more money than a lawyer coming out of college. Well, that's because he does a job of three people and does it really, really well. So what do I care? To pay him or yeah. pay three idiots more, right? It's just not, we compensate really well for those that do well. And because we do that, people stick around. I. It was only until we started scaling our sales department uh, because we went from wholesale to retail is when I started seeing a turnover. Yeah. Right. You know, we had the gray market challenge where we let go of one guy because he didn't cut it. Then two more guys didn't really make it out of gray markets challenge. Right. We had Chris and Nick that are no longer here. And again, I talked to every one of these guys till this day. It's just when it comes to sales, it's a different breed. It's killer. It's survival of the fittest. It's very, very cutthroat because if you're not that person that can handle that heat, you're not going to be good at sales. That's just the nature of sales. Yeah. Uh, what would be your best advice to aspiring watch dealers specifically? So people, I get that DM about, I don't know, 22 times a day. Hey, you know, why? what do I do? How do I do it? And so on. You know what I tell people? I said, attend some trade shows, right? And that's not necessarily, that has a more, you know, for those that understand will be successful, but those that don't understand, because most will say, well, wait a minute, I don't have any trade shows around me. I don't have any of this. Right there and then I can tell them you're not cut out for this. Because when I say to you, you want to be in this industry, go attend some trade show. What I'm really saying to you is put yourself in a place, regardless of where you are in the world, where the product you're trying to sell is being traded at a rapid pace. That usually happens at wholesale shows. That usually happens in places like 47th Street. Uh, or Samson Street in Philadelphia, or the Gold Souk in Dubai, or many or TST in Hong Kong. There's so many places out there where these watches are traded. And you don't have to buy and sell anything. All you have to do is walk around and ask questions. I know guys, when I started in this business, it'd be very popular to be a runner on 47th Street. People say, runner on 47th Street, what is that? It's very simple. A guy would get up every single morning, get to the street about 9.30, because you know, they don't open up early, 9.30, 10 o'clock, put, put on a three-piece suit, Looked apart, there were 10,000 watch stores on 47th Street. And he would walk from 5th to 6th Avenue all day, every day. Hey, what are you looking for today? Oh, I need this particular Rolex. Rates it down. 
hey, what are you looking today? Oh, I'm looking for this. By the time he would get the sixth street, guess what? And go back to fit, he would already bring all those watches to the guy that's looking for it, making his few hundred dollars in between. I knew runners there made $5,000 a day on 47th Street without having an office, without having a website, or without having Instagram. If there's a will, there's a way. You could be at a trade show and come in there without a single fucking dollar in your pocket. And just by walking around and figuring out what people are looking for, you can make money in between. And that's what I mean by attention trade shows. And that's what most people don't realize because most people will make excuses. I don't have the capital. I don't live next to 47th Street. I don't know of any trade shows. You know, especially when people say to me, well, which trade shows? And I'm just like, well, fucking Google it. Like, seriously, you want me to spit it all out for you? Like, I don't even know who you are. That's the, that, that's the downside of, I answer all my DMs on Instagram, which right now I'm probably sitting on a few hundred over the weekend. Yeah. But it, it, but this is, you know, I'm very short when it comes to that answer. Yeah, it's a lot of stupid questions, uh, probably. Um, in terms of uh, 47th Street, how do you actually know that all the dealers are legit and all the products are real? You don't. You don't. But the, the most important thing in this industry is your word. Yeah. The most important thing in this industry is your reputation. And once you lose that in the industry, you might as well go to a different industry. And it's a very old school. Uh, it's a very, very old school uh industry you're so many things get done on the handshake it's it's that you, you tell people and they're like you're either lying or you're crazy right but walk with me on 47th street i'll go from fifth street to Fifth Avenue. i'll walk a block i'll have 10 million in my bag i won't sign a single piece of paper or write a single check that's how strong that is now there are downsides to that but that's been the traditional way of doing business in a secondary market it's on a handshake. Even though we deal with ridiculous amounts of money, it's on a handshake. You have no idea how many dealers can call me tomorrow and say, Robin, send me $10 million for an event I'm doing tomorrow at my store. I ship it overnight. And then they ship it back. Whatever, they don't sell. That's a huge amount of trust. Yeah, that's, that's it. And I'm, I kind of like that because it is an old school way of doing all that stuff in terms of, hey, you know, it's 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 it gives you a warm and pleasant feeling inside. The problem with that is that things don't get don't go wrong until they go yeah. wrong. Yeah. Right. And that's the you know, I've had guys crash in an airplane, unfortunately. I've had guys uh, you know, get diagnosed with cancer, this fear, all of me money. What am I gonna do? Go after their widow? You know what I mean? Like it is what it yeah. is. And then you had guys just going back. You have guys going into this industry knowing how it is for the very purpose of working in the industry two to three years, investing a couple of million dollars and walking away with six, seven. You do that too. But then they can do that in any industry once you create a report. Yeah, we, we also see that kind of a, I, I run a marketing agency and the influx of new SMAs and uh, gurus over the last couple of years is uh, it's kind of, it's horrible for our industry. Cause I, lo I love, I love the social media experts. Considering that media as a whole is a, is a consistently moving target and it changes literally on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. You yeah. have experts that, you know, it's such a moving target. It's like, I, I, I to me, social media marketing is you throw something against the wall and see if it sticks. Right? Yeah, it's, it's just on no, testing. There's no, formula. there's no formula. There's no magic formula. No, it, it, I, I even sell potential clients or clients. It's just constant testing. And kind of sucks to her uh, to hear when 
we spend your money, but it's it's actually what it is. It's just come. That's what it, that's what it is. That's all, as long as you have problems, people about it. Yeah. And you expect them that hey, this is this is the nature of the beast. Nobody yeah. knows algorithms of YouTube, Instagram, and so on and so forth. They're always evolving, and even if you just got used to one, there comes the next one. There's just there's so much. Not not an easy, very interesting industry, but not an evil one. Yeah, we we also have an issue with the with the trust part because there are so many bad actors in the in the industry. So you're kind oh, of yeah. starting at you're starting at scratch. I mean, the ones that have my DMs, I'll get you a hundred thousand followers tomorrow. Yeah, way those guys. It is. Uh, so, what is it? The the press firm PR Mogul or something it's called. Apparently, it has five thousand employees because uh, Mogul Press. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, thousand employees because I get up a hundred GMs for somebody that works for Mobile Press every single day, and these are different people. I'm like, wow, this company must have a lot of employees. They're really trying to get me on the front page of Forbes. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's an interesting industry. Uh, it is. Um, what do you think about luxury bazaar uh, retail? And I'm not talking about the trade shows, but have you ever considered doing actually a retail location? <laughs> Well, yeah, we're, we've been looking at Miami for the last couple of years. Yeah, I know, I know Alex has been looking at Miami. Just because, uh, Alex <laughs> already has his backpack and ready to go. Uh, it's, a, it's a question of affordability. Yeah. And I've never did a, a fundraise. And did a, the problem with me is uh, if I do something huge in Miami, I would have to take the entire world downstairs and bring it to Miami. And Miami is yeah. going to become a shipping department for luxurybazaar.com. Yeah. We still sell two to three million a week here, right? Uh, it's a, it's not a being able to, I can spend a million dollars and build the most beautiful store. I have the stat. I have the process in place to have it up and running in a day. Uh, it's a matter of having inventory, being able to afford to park that inventory in that store. Yeah. But it's, and that's one of the things that we're resolving now. And we're thinking that maybe the right way to do it is not a full blown crazy ass store, but an office rather, because that could serve as a. Uh, a point of buying because we buy from the public number one and again no matter how comfortable we make it for you to sell our watch your watch to us via our website it's still the same concept and i feel like buying is not as bad as actually putting a watch in a box and sending it somewhere uh and then uh you know but there's something about somebody physically walking in and saying oh here's my watch here's a check thank you right uh and then uh also because the business is so personable right because we do have a lot of clients in South America, which frequent Miami all the time, because we have a huge exposure to South America in terms of marketing and Miami in its own. And Miami economically is booming as well. Yeah. I have a place in Miami. My business partner has a place in Miami, right? It's like, it's one of those things where it's we're there 10 to 12 times a year anyway. But having an office, I feel like in a very least will allow a salesperson like Alex to be like, okay, well, it's one thing I'm gonna come to your house. Here's a watch that was just shipped to me from headquarters. Or stop by the office. I'll show you this watch, and you look at a few other things, and maybe something for your wife, right? Yeah. So maybe that's the route we'll go. Because in the very least, it's like when you open up a big badass store, you want to show people how big your dick is. When you open up an office, you don't really have to because it's just that it's an office. Yeah, right. But a few pieces here, people understand that majority of the inventory is sitting back home, and it can be here the next day. Yeah, it's, I think it's very interesting, and uh, especially because the rates of uh, or, or the frequency of sale, as you say, the the cost is actually having uh, having the pieces in store. 
but I think I think we're going to shift a lot in the coming years to more retail than e-com. E-com is still going to go wild, but uh, I think we've kind of lost the the retail aspect of a lot of businesses and I think it's coming. I think it's coming back. That's just my opinion. I personally, my opinion is a little different. Uh, retail is retail. It always has been, especially for high echoes. There's something about walking in and actually that's why a little bit of time will always yeah. have a little bit of right? Uh, because it's the feel of walking in there and trying stuff on and being there and that being pampered and giving champagne, right? Um, yeah, it's so experience. If you're talking, if you're talking about ecom, I think that we're going to see a shift in ecom. I think somewhere, somehow, you've seen it already. You see all these major social media platforms having marketplaces and so on and so yep. forth. There's a boy genius somewhere now, maybe sitting in the back of a classroom in some college somewhere or in a dorm, figuring out a way to change e-commerce as we know it, where your website just becomes a billboard. And the actual transactions are going to take place in some sort of a concept social media type of a platform, like where it becomes so instant, it becomes so comfortable. Again, I'm not that boy genius, but I'm sure somebody out there, you're going to see e-commerce and social media merge into one. Already, it's already happening, you know? Yeah. And it's it's probably going to take one big idea from somebody and then either a big growth or a Google buying it. That's really it. Yeah, most likely. Uh, I think it... Especially, I'm just speaking for myself as well because I love a good retail experience, but there is so many bad retailers, especially now traveling around Europe. It's either extremely good or it's just awful, and I never want to go into the store again. Yeah. Um, where do you see Luxury Bazaar and yourself in like five years' time? Is there a five-year plan going forward? I think five years. I think five years time. I I'm going to be closer to making an exit, and I don't want to make an exit where oh here's my company goodbye. I want to alleviate the responsibilities that I have on a daily basis, and if I make an exit, which allows me to take chips off the tables and give me a little bit of a future beyond that, but leaves me to do what I actually really love to do the most in this industry, and people don't. Most people don't know what it is. It's actually sales. Sales. Yeah. I'm a salesperson at point. I still tell my salespeople I'm the best salesperson here, and I believe that. And the reason I love sales is it's not the thrill of the hunt, it's not the profit, it's the fact, it's the interaction that I get from my clients. And so, if I could step off and bring in some young whippersnapper here to become CEO and and take chips off the table and sell the company or sell the company partially, and then post that have a five to ten year exit with that part of that contract, that's what I would do. That's what I'm going to do. And then just retire? Because I also like to travel. Yeah, it's it's just retiring and travel? Or are we no, seeing something no, else? I, I'm not the retiring type, meaning that I, 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 can, I can't sit at home, I can tell you that much. But I do want to have the freedom if I want to go for a month. And instead of limiting my trips two weeks, let's say sometime, or, or 10 days, or whatever it might be, if I want to the Portugal trip I told you earlier. Yeah. I'm going to be in Portugal for two weeks. Well, I want to have the freedom to do Portugal for two weeks and then go to Casablanca for another two weeks. Then continue on, right? I don't want to be... I want to pull myself out of the process to a point where if I'm not here for two months, the wheel is still turning. And I'm you're working hard towards that and traveling to where that's actually kind of happening now. It's just I haven't pulled myself out really. So uh, 
do we know who is the next CEO or we don't, we don't know who the next CEO is going to be, but, uh, uh, I guess time will show. That's going to be a amazing YouTube series. I think. Yeah. Right. Should be interesting. So the last question is what is the beauty of business for you? I'm sorry. I, I didn't catch that. What? What is the beauty of business to you? The beauty of business to me is working for yourself. That when you do well and something good happens, you know, because you did it. When you do something bad and something bad happens, it's also on you, right? It's, I look at business as being under your own weight because in today's society, and I learned this while being in the military, the military makes it a very comfortable place to be, especially in the United States. You're under Uncle Sam's wing to a point where you have a place to live. You have three meals a day. You have a clothing allowance. I can give you money on top of it, right? And I could have stayed in the military 20 years, retired at the age of 38 and had an additional income. I had a whole other career. And at first I thought it was just the military, but then I realized, well, wait a minute. No, it's also the corporate world because I've been in the corporate world and they provided a more comfortable wing over me, right? And if you're a valuable employee, which I was, they made it even more comfortable to ensure that I stick around and continue yeah. to making them money. And then I moved on to my own business and I'm doing the same thing with my employees, making a comfortable wing over their heads, where I feel that the freedom that comes with not having, being your own wing over your head and being the wing of your family, and then in turn, those that are here working for you, it's gotta be the most satisfying thing without us how much money to make. And if you're successful, that's just balls. That's awesome. So, uh, where should people go to find you or buy a watch or sell actually? Luxurybazaar.com. Very easy. And check us out on YouTube, Roman Sharp, Luxury Bazaar. And, uh, or just Google my name. You'll find us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Alexander.